Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jacob Marley is dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the podcast you are about to listen to. On Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day in the morning. So I was um, going through a few things in uh, my house and my uh, grandfather on my mother's side had this really nice statue of Statue of Liberty. It was like a little like foot tall one, maybe a little bit taller. And I remembered when I was a little kid, I used to take uh, like these micro, like almost like a um, uh, Mighty Max or Polly Pocket size type of figurine. I would pretend to be Spider-Man and his enemies, you know, fighting on top of the Statue of Liberty, which is close to what they were going to do in the original uh, movie being made in the 80s by Canon Films, um, which never got made. But you know a movie that did get made, John? Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Well, welcome. Welcome to uh, Jacob Marley is Dead, a podcast where uh, we fight like Spider-Man on top of the Statue of Liberty, but mostly we talk about A Christmas Carol. God, uh, we've I'm had getting better transitions. <laughs> I think, I, I don't know. I think that that was a, I think a movie to movie transition. <laughs> like This was a movie and do you know what else is? <laughs> John, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an out. We're an hour and a half into recording from the last episode. A little behind the curtain stuff here. I just got done working my job. I'm a little out of it here. Let's get this ball rolling because we got to talk about Matthew McConaughey some more. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. Yes. So, um, when we when we last left our our hero, uh, Connor <laughs> Mead. Uh, Ghost of Girlfriends Past. If you didn't listen to the first half of this episode, is a modern retelling of. Uh, a Christmas Carol. If you didn't listen to the first half, go do that. It's really weird to listen to this part first. Um, no, 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 John. That's that. No, Stanley was right. Every issue is somebody's first issue. This is the first time somebody's hearing this podcast. Welcome. I sincerely, I sincerely hope that that's not true. I apologize. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so when we last left our 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 sex fiend, kind of gross me too ish hero connor mead uh he had been blasted to the past on a motorized bed by an 80s fever dream uh in the form of emma stone to be shown uh how he got uh red pilled as a teenage incel by his creepy uncle this sounds like a christmas carol right (laughs) that's the plot of a christmas carol well basically um the last time we saw him he was tumbling out of bed and kind of snapping back to reality and 
Oops, there he goes rushes. Gravity. Yeah, <laughs> gravity. <laughs> gravity takes its toll. Uh, he rushes downstairs with like uh, like a sweaty upper lip, um, while Jenny, the family friend who he's been in love with since they were seven years old, and who. I guess is still connected to the family. We never really get an explanation. We don't really know how they're connect- connected. It's just like family friend. It's kind of like Rachel in the Batman, the Nolan Batman movies where she just is a friend of the family. Oh God. Wait, 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 wait. Is, is she Batman begins Rachel or dark Knight Rachel that there are two different type of Rachel's right there. Cause one's a great performance and one is a performance. Okay. Um, so she's kind of leading this uh she's leading this the dance practice downstairs which is like a whole choreographed number it's it's it, interesting this whole wedding is weird like the the rehearsal dinner felt like the wedding party in a way because of how big it was and like there were multiple different places and people were at the bar and now like there's you know um this choreographed dance that's happening. Well, it seems like a destination wedding for a lot of people. They're at this freaking yeah. mansion. They're at Duck Manor. So it's this big place. Yeah. And I guess everyone's staying there. They're either staying there or they're staying at a hotel nearby. So they went to the house for dinner the night before the wedding. It's not a huge wedding from the looks of things. It's like, I'd say 50 people at, at most. Like, And that's... By some weddings, that's like, I'm not small, but like, you know, like some weddings and movie weddings and in movie wedding terms, movie wedding terms, it's a it's a hundred to two hundred people. So this is small by movie theater terms of weddings. Yeah, it's hard to say, too, because of how it's shot. We we don't really see anyone besides the the bridal party and the the bride's family. So he goes downstairs and he he's like breaking into the champagne because he needs a drink because not only is he a sex addict, but he's like clearly a functional alcoholic and the cork flies out and it knocks out one of the struts holding up the enormous wedding cake and he catches the wedding cake. And then rather than doing what literally any sane person would do and saying, Hey, can I get some help in here to the people who are like on the other side of the door? They're, they're right there. He does this whole like Marx Brothers routine of trying to like reach out and somehow grab a champagne bottle with his foot to hold up the cake. This I didn't understand the this seems insane, but it's all toxic masculine. He can't let anybody see him fail on this scale. He's not a column out of a wedding cake. That's insane that he's been able to do it. So he doesn't want to be caught in this position looking like a fool. So he's got to solve the problem. Plus yeah. he's drunk. Plus he's drunk, and he's already made an ass out of himself at this party, at the like in several other scenes before that. So he's already not really in the looking in the best light. So he's got he can't even look like he can't even have the mistake of the column be known, and that's why it's happening. I get it logically, and I was saying this to the TBC. I was like, "Say help! Hey, come in here!" I was being a schmuck. I popped the champagne. It did the thing. Help me. But he can't allow yeah. himself to do it. I mean, and he, I could, actually he believe... could even lie, right? Like, it wouldn't be out of question for him to lie and say, like, I came in here and I saw, like, the cake starting to tip and I tried to catch it. But either way, do you think it's also, Wait. like, a metaphor for, like, if they see him trying to save the cake, it shows that he actually believes in marriage? 
I mean, maybe that's there a little bit. I mean, that's it's like actually a really, a really it's, nice. Is it like a really clumsy motif, like, I guess? Is if, if that's what they were shooting for, you're giving them a lot of the benefit of the doubt there, John. I don't think they were that deep, but maybe. I, I think it I think it is because I think it's supposed to symbolize him starting to rethink his lifestyle after the first ghost. Well, look, he's not going to screw over his brother like his brother. Like he will give his brother an out to get out of this wedding. And he really doesn't want him to get married because he really doesn't believe in it. But he's not going to screw over his brother. And mm-hmm. this is his brother's birth wedding birthday cake. This is his brother's wedding cake. So he is going to try to save it as clumsily as he does. He's going to try to save that cake. I don't think that has to do anything necessarily with supporting the idea of marriage. I think it has to do with more of like, I'm not going to be an asshole. Another thing here, and I don't want to derail this, but it just hit my head. Does he lie? Like ever? Does McConaughey ever lie? That's a good question. I don't think so. It doesn't seem like it. So he's not saying like he, he so that's another thing with like Scrooge. Scrooge just speaks the truth as he sees it. He doesn't lie. He just yeah. says things we don't want to hear or what he believes like or like his interpretation of things. So I just I, I just want to point that out. It's a weird thing to finally notice. But like he won't lie. He will try to play things in the best light for himself, but he won't lie to people. And I, I don't know. I just I, I like to. I think that's something we should take a little bit of a note of. He's still a scumbag. He's still predatory, but he doesn't lie for whatever that's worth. We cut back to the dance room and hot guy Brad is like now dancing with Jennifer Garner. And like, he's also like a super good dancer. So it's fine. It's whatever this character, this, this character. No, 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 John, I'm sorry. I have to stop. This guy sucks. This guy (laughs) I'm I'm sick and tired of these types of characters. And what I really hate about him, besides his good looks, my God, is he gorgeous. What I really hate about him is the fact that there is nothing wrong about him. There is nothing there to make us have any sympathy for him. Okay? There's one little scene coming up that is playful. But it's like, I don't care. Like, this guy has nothing that makes him endearing to me. We so, but he's not supposed to be. So this is like a a, a rom com archetype, right? Is like the the other guy, like the person who represents a challenge because they're everything that the the main character is not, but maybe should try to strive to be. Like Brad is sensitive and attentive to her when she's like kind of in crisis over all this stuff she has going on. Like he's just a guy who's interested in her and isn't complicated. But see, here's the thing. In good rom-coms, not good rom-coms, but standard rom-coms, the other guy that has the girl type of character usually has some sort of fault that makes us not root for him. That makes us not like that guy. And I think the thing here is like, like, why don't we want Jennifer to get along with this guy, to get uh, with this guy? Why would we root against it? Because McConaughey is so detestable with everything else he does, that we need to have this guy have something. If the thing is that McConaughey, as bad of a guy as he is, never lies to Jennifer as he sees it, right? But this guy has somebody on the side or is only marrying her for money. He needs something to drag him down because if he's an angel, well then shit, marry the angel. But so he's, I I think that 
ultimately she has feelings for Matthew McConaughey, but he is a a bad person at this moment, right? So I think that this other guy represents a like it's not complicated for her to have feelings for him. He doesn't need to be flawed. We don't need to root against that guy to root for McConaughey. But what we need to root for is like the version of McConaughey we get at the end where he's able to acknowledge that he's been wrong this whole time. And that's all she wants. Like if he can do that, then perfect Brad is, is an afterthought because she doesn't have the connection with him. You know what I'm saying? Like he's just there to, they don't have anything to do with him. So they make a really weird choice later on in the movie that we'll get to. And it's just like, I hate perfect characters in movies. They're not real. And he doesn't even, he doesn't do anything that makes me believe in this character. And he doesn't do anything in this movie that makes me root against this character. So I'm just, I would root for him, but I know he's not our protagonist. He's Yeah, he's less a character than a plot device, I guess. And I hate him for it. I hate, I hate, I hate that. I hate, I hate what that symbolizes. Do you think though that, that having a character who he's, he's static and, and just is, everything that Jennifer Garner should look for in a guy, but she ultimately has the agency to choose. Like she has the agency to say like, no, I'll go with the complicated guy because he's changing and he's shown like, I don't know. I don't want to get too hung up on Brad, but basically what happens is as they're dancing and having this actually really nice moment, you hear the crash because Matthew McConaughey has failed to support the cake. And then everyone comes running in and Bridezilla goes into like a fit. Cranking the 11 up to like a 26. And if she had played the figs as if it was nothing and just made a little smirk to the side and maybe had a little moment and maybe had to leave the room, but didn't let it release in that moment, then well, this would be totally way... justified. But yeah. But at this point, I don't care. Yeah, because they, they, she's not an endearing character, so we don't care that she's upset. It's almost you you almost kind of enjoy it a little bit because she's so much so quickly that there's no there's no room for you to develop an attachment to her before the wedding starts to fall apart. People suffer. And when we suffer and we see it in films, they are endeared to us because we the the humans, we 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 all go through these types of things. So when we see somebody have to take something on the chin and keep walking, we we're like, okay, I I, we've all been there. But when we see somebody always have a hissy fit over every little thing, it makes us not like that character. And that's what happens. Instead of us cheering, we hate We don't see enough other places where like she's exasperated by the logistics of throwing a wedding this big. We see one. Right? It's 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 literally just the figs. And then every other time she's just generally anxious and i'm not saying it's wrong for a character to be an anxious character but we like i just don't with this particular character it's so one-dimensional and and kind of abrasive and tonally super out of whack with with the the core of the movie which is a little bit more grounded that it it frustrates me it's just not well written we want to see this marriage happen right Right. so we should we need to be in this person's corner and if we're going to be forced to look at a few things, like deal with this moment here and some other stuff coming up, I-, I agree with you. I think we would have loved to have seen, like, imagine she's in a room, right? And the three bridesmaid characters who are not likable characters at all. They are yeah, kind of no, the worst. They're all pretty bad. Imagine if they are just sniping 
putting this on her shoulder and this on her shoulder. And like you said, like we need to see her having to deal with it. And she could even have a moment there where she leaves the house and gets a breath of fresh air. And maybe that's a good moment for Jennifer to come over. And maybe they're not even friends, but she's like the wedding planner kind of. And like, yeah, she's it's weird. So like, she kind of like gives her a little bit of talk and maybe that's where we get reason why she would give up Brad to go for McConaughey. John, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Let's remake this movie. So before McConaughey gets kicked out of this house or he feels like he needs to get kicked out, Jennifer Gardner just says, stop. You're not not cleaning up this mess. And she makes him clean up the cake mess. And they're there. And it's it's kind of cute in a weird way because she's getting, you know, she's making fun of him as he does it. And it's funny how like sometimes when you're friends with somebody or somebody you've been intimate with and you have a really good like banter or like dynamic like that, how naturally it comes back after years when you have to work together. And so like they haven't been around each other that much, but as soon as they're in a job where they have to work with each other, they're joking, they're making fun of it. They, they can go along with each other pretty well. And that leads to maybe the worst thing McConaughey could do at this moment. <laughs> yeah. So he, they, they're very close and he leans in to kiss her and she at first looks like she's going to kiss him back but then she pulls away and she's like what are you doing what am i doing this is also crazy like we can't do this and that's when he goes out um he leaves the house to meet the ghost of christmas present well she cares more she cares more about him like that's that's a theme about this movie about people caring more about relationships she wants to be with him even if she hates him at this moment she really wishes she could be with him so her her first instinct is to maybe lean forward, but sense and reason and Brad are telling her to back up. And it's so and then yeah, he leaves the house, and that's when we get our unique introduction into the ghost of Christmas present. And he goes outside, and who does he run into but his assistant Melanie? Except not, because in a bizarre twist. Bob Cratchit is also the ghost of Christmas present in this movie. Yeah, this is when the movie lost the, um, the they broke their own rules. The rule established with um, Emma Stone's character was Emma Stone was the first sexual partner that McConaughey had. We don't get all the mm-hmm. gory details. We don't need them. But we know that they hooked up and that was the beginning of his girlfriends, his partners. Yeah. The... Think about what a we and the, I like the character's performance, but like they've never hooked up and they say that they've never hooked up. So I think the idea they break though, their like, own rules. I so I don't think they do. And here's why. So she's his she's the closest thing he has to a spouse like she manages. But think about it. She manages all of his women. She she is the one who is arranging his social calendar. She is the one who is following him around. She knows his routine. She works for him on the weekends. He has a closer relationship with her than he does with any woman in the present, including Jenny. I, I it but is I jarring like, at first, but I like the idea of it. I, 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 I agree with that. I agree that it's an interesting choice, but I don't like, I feel like they went against their own rules here. And just don't make that connection. Make that was the first person you were with, but the, they they kind of go into the muck a little bit to give us a, like a rule, and then they don't go, follow through with that rule. 
don't establish rules in a movie unless you're going to play by them. But I would say if I think if it was just thrown in there and they didn't do any work to explain it, I would agree with you. But even he is like, we're not this isn't we're not in a relationship like we haven't slept together. What are you talking about? And she's like, I'm the closest thing you have to a relation. Like it's no, I get that. I get that. I just I feel like because in my mind, so who, sh- so who would not- it be then? Like, who would you make it? If, it if if I if we're going by the reason why she's the ghost of the present then his ghost of the past should be young Jennifer. But it's about, like, the whole movie is about his relationship with Jennifer. No, I get that. But if it's about relationships, he clearly had a relationship, their friendship. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it wasn't romantic at that time. But, like, I don't know. I feel like they were giving us two explanations for why people were ghosts of his past. And both are acceptable reasons to have them as the ghosts, but they're two different reasons for him having ghosts. And that... and look, if it's all in his mind, then it's fine because so, there's so no actual here, rules. So here's the thing, though, right? Because and because we're going to see with the third one, none of that makes sense, right? That's just right. But but right. here here here, and here's the thing: the past is all about the women, right? The past is all about his experiences with women, all of the the random hookups, his his whole view on love and relationships, and the fact that his first relationship was a random hookup at a party that's like a pivotal thing now in the present that's not the big issue in the in the present now it's that that life has led him to the place where the most meaningful relationship he has is the one he has with his secretary you know what i mean so so it's a so it's a different phase of his life in the present which means the the quote-unquote girlfriend of of Christmas present or whatever ghost of girlfriend's present isn't a girl, but is instead this only person that he actually has like a real relationship with and the closest thing he has to his spouse. Yeah. And this is like we said earlier, this is his cratchit. So it's kind of like a twist there. And I was happy because I was like, I was hoping to see this actor in more of the movie and um, we get it as the ghost of the, uh, as the ghost of present. And we get kind of it's like one of our first Cratchits that gets to to slap Scrooge upside the head, which is like a nice moment. Because well, um, that's what the Ghost of Christmas Present does. The Ghost of Christmas Present right. has to throw Scrooge's own words back yeah. at him, and um, that's she another reason to it. make to, if you want to make this Cratchit because like. Scrooge really deals with Cratchit and what he's doing to Cratchit during the Ghost of Christmas Present. So there is like a a line of connection there as well. Okay, imagine this for a second. Tangent, but it's a smart thing. A fun fun thing, at least. Um, You have Ghost of Christmas Past be um, Allison, right? You have Ghost of Christmas Present be Cratchit. And Ghost of Christmas Future is the corpse of Scrooge. Ooh, right and he takes yeah. it off at the end and it's his dead body underneath the robe and he grabs him and the chain is on him as he drags him down to hell and then think of it from like a Cratchit point of view where Cratchit could be having the dinner right and like do a sides to Scrooge like you never saw this in my life like like oh oh this is the version we're writing this is the version we're doing John yay <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna That's end up great. doing a movie of the oh like a play at least like probably <laughs> um yeah so she basically there's a really funny moment where where they're in his car and 
he's like bracing and he's like worried. And she's like, what's wrong? And he's like, are we going to like fly away someplace? Because that's what was happened happened last time. And she's like, no, it's the present. It, we're going inside the house. It's right there. It's just like a funny, I don't know, like some of the writing in this is like pretty funny. This, I think this character is underused in this moment because the ghost of Christmas present is really quick. And it's mostly Matthew McConaughey getting to go inside and see what the family is talking about without them realizing he's there. And the fan and basically his brother is defending him to the rest of the family and saying, listen, he's tough. But like, you have to understand our parents died when I was two and he was seven and he had to grow up way faster than I did. And he justifies a lot. It's a great speech. It's they a really, are, really great moment. It is. So they, they are crapping on McConaughey justifiably. Like they yeah. all are getting their digs in. The mom has a little quip, like I've, I've, I've done worse or something like that. And like little, yeah. John Mulaney's shoulder mom energy there, like, you know, like it's yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. it's funny and it's a good scene. But he, I don't know if you've ever been in a room where somebody is shitting on a family member or somebody is making fun of somebody that you really do care about, and you've seen the side of them that they either don't choose to show or other people mm-hmm. can't see of themselves. And you've either had to defend them or even defend your relationship with that person. Why would you, why is this person this way? Why could you be friends with them? Why could you, why could you, is that acceptable that that person is that way? And the speech he gives is one of the most beautiful monologues about family and brotherhood I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it's really good. It is. I, and I'm not kidding here. If you don't do any, if you don't watch the movie, that's fine and totally good. Go out of your way, watch this monologue, this whole scene from everybody crapping on McConaughey to the brother's speech to McConaughey watching his brother defend him. As I think any brother would want to be defended by their brother and says things that maybe aren't true about your relationship with your family members or your friends but you've been in that situation and i cried i freaking cried at ghosts of girlfriends past so (laughs) i don't know what that says except for that if anything else they gave us this scene and it it's i am better for watching that scene and i love it yeah and and the ghost basically tells um, Connor, Matthew McConaughey's character. Um, you say you don't believe in love, but like, then what do you call that? What do you call what your brother just did? What do you call that feeling? And I like that idea that it's broadening the idea where Matthew McConaughey has this really narrow view of love as this made up thing that traps you into losing your power in relationships. But like, then to see it on display, it's not love between people. It's like love for his brother and the love that his brother gives to him and it gives him pause. And, and this is, this is the thing where you were talking about the tone problems that this movie has. This is the tone that this movie should have. It, it at when it's at its best, it's very heartfelt and sincere, but that heartfelt sincerity is sandwiched in with all of this attempts at comedy that is not very good. Mm Mm-hmm. And it doesn't and it doesn't work in the way that I think a movie like The Hangover manages to have sincere moments within a really broad comedy that work. It doesn't work in this movie. 
the hangover knows what it is. It is an evolution of the high school boner movie, okay? It is the next logical step for these characters. It's where they are. But like those movies, as horrible as some of those are, go back and rewatch some of those 1999 uh, teenage comedy movies. Woo, boy, that sucks, all right? That's really problematic. But The Hangover is the natural extension of that. But like those other movies, it has those warm moments snuck in there but they're the minority they're the smaller they are not the majority of the film yeah then you have some movies where it's the flip and that's good too this it's right down the middle and it it's you can never commit to one tone and if the like you said john if the movie was completely this and we got more of McConaughey's relationship with his brother. We get more about Jennifer and McConaughey. Like, imagine a young Jennifer having to comfort McConaughey after his parents have died, you know? And just re- another reason why I cried as a brother thing, he says, like, he helped me read. Like, as a guy with dyslexia, that's pulling up my heartstrings. Like, the little lines like that, like, I this scene is so much better than the movie it is in. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating, but it's amazing at the same time because it's so good. Yeah. Um, And so then we get like more like inane conversation with the the bridesmaids, but they bring up um, they bring up the fact that Jenny is so twisted up over McConaughey that like she can't even see what's in front of her face with Brad. And they're saying this as um, Jennifer Garner walks into the room and then she has that kind of like sad moment where she walks away like a little bit hurt by what they said. And then she goes back into the kitchen and she's kind of like... So she gets embarrassed by those girls and like they, they talk about how like, you know, she's screwed up and twisted and everything. And she goes into the kitchen and she does this weird thing where she's putting the cake back together. Yeah. It fell on the freaking floor. But yeah, it's 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 like fixing something she can fix. Like there's something broken and she's trying to fix it, even though it's futile, which may be a metaphor for her relationship with Connor. Well, Connor McConaughey, he was doing the same way of putting it back together when it first breaks, like Humpty Dumpty trying to put together and it can't it can't be put back together again. He was trying to literally smush the cake together after he said it tasted horribly, which was. It was a funny line and it was like it, it fell into my mouth. I could it just naturally happened, but like it was a bad cake. But then she's at the kitchen counter stacking crumbs and cream of cake onto each other. And it's simultaneously disgusting looking and kind of delicious. Like I, I won't lie. Like you ever yeah, eat crumpled yeah, up cake like mixed a, with the icing like and a, like just, like a trifle. Mm. Yeah, it was like ah, like Show mommy how the piggies eat, you know, like, um, (laughs) but then Brad comes in and starts to fix the cake with her kind of, and they have a scene that's making us supposed to cheer for them. Like, I don't know. I just, yeah, it's, he's coming in and, and comforting her when she feels frustrated by what she did with, she feels frustrated with herself over wanting to kiss Matthew McConaughey back and probably hurt that they were talking about her behind her back. And he kind of comes in to comfort her and they sort of end up like commiserating over what a jerk he is. And he's standing there watching it and realizes like, oh my gosh, I'm driving them together. Like, I want I want her to be with me. I want this 
to not work out, but I'm forcing them together. We we flash to now a random apartment where the three women that Matthew McConaughey broke up with over Zoom, who did not know each other until that conference call, are now sitting on a couch having the world's most scripted conversation about what happened, like multiple hours later. My wife and I watched The Bachelor because we're garbage people and we like to uh, watch other garbage people be garbage and be entertained by how much more garbage they are than we are. And there's this thing on The Bachelor where in the talking heads um, that they do, the, the kind of like interview confessional style sequences, it's very obvious that the producers are asking leading questions, but then clipping it together as though the people are just coming up with this stuff off the top of their heads. And that's literally what this scene reminded me of. The conversation that these three women are having is just like, here's my feelings about this. Okay, your turn. Okay, here's my feelings about it. It's so bad. It's so frustratingly bad that this is the like Cratchit household scene that we're given in this movie. Right. And like, is, and is the Fred scene, the scene with the brother or is that the Cratchit scene? Like, well, the, if, yeah, the Fred, the Fred scene is him giving that speech with right, the family. But like, yeah, but it's the most intimate and warm scene we have in the movie. So I think of it as yeah. the Cratchit scene, but it's not that like, think of it like this way. What if he sees all three of them in three different places afterwards? One person is fine, not even thinking about it, right? On with her life. One person is at a bar clubbing. And then one person is extremely depressed over it. And like really like having like a dark night after that breakup. Like, like again, if this movie went really dark and like was really talking about emotions honestly and really giving us that like a solid effort here we would see one of them like in a dark place and like he's got to watch that not just the morning after the evening after in the dark dark moments and that's more solid than let's have mimosas and yeah yeah it, it's super fr- it's super weird and we we really do aside from aside from Jenny waking up and being hurt that he left we never see the consequences of him like casually hooking up with these women and then dropping them because the, the what we're told about him is he dates women for a couple of weeks to the point where they think that he has feelings for them and then he kind of drops the boom when it gets close which to me reads like he's hurt a lot of people but we never really feel that and we don't feel that in this moment these three women are like essentially the same tone as the three bridesmaids there's almost no difference and then bafflingly this decision to have this it turns out that this is the apartment of melanie so the ghost disappears and then melanie pops out of the kitchen with like mixed drinks and she's gotten these women together to talk about it and i what is why what does that mean i don't get it it felt like they needed to try to figure out some way to work that character into the scene but like Think of it. Imagine if, if imagine if Melanie, the Cratchit here, her scene is the Cratchit scene. She's got a good relationship with a with a partner, right? She's you know they're in love. They don't have the best apartment, but they're making it do, right? Maybe they're trying to get engaged and get pregnant. I don't know. They're but they're in a good relationship, but she feels guilt about what she has to do day in and day out. 
and kind of maybe do a reverse of the Cratchit situation where the boyfriend is like, or maybe this is maybe oh 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 okay 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 she's she's starting to date somebody and she is describing the day's events to her boyfriend and her boyfriend doesn't see a problem with it and that causes her to have a fight with him and ends that relationship because toxic masculinity and the patriarchy is a smog we all breathe and so this guy is in the same bro club with mcconaughey and she sees mcconaughey and the boyfriend and that causes her to have problems with her relationships outside of work and so that's the problem it's not poverty but it's a his toxic attitude to people is tainting her life and changing how she perceives relationships and maybe the guy like or maybe like she's that. the one maybe like she's the one who's cynical about relationships like like all this time with McConaughey is starting to rub off on her and her yeah. boyfriend is trying to get close to her but she's like really harsh about it any pos- any either one of those choices are way better than what we got oh yeah. god so what happens here is you may recall in the Alistair Sim one, we got like one scene with with Ghost Marley. And in the Albert Finney version, we got two scenes with Ghost Marley. And now we are getting the second of a whopping four scenes with Ghost Marley in this version because he leaves Melanie's apartment and he walks out into the street and Uncle Wayne is there to kind of see how things are going. We hired Get-Go, we're gonna shoot Get-Go, okay? He's gonna be <laughs> in the movie. Look, you, you you got you got uh, Michael Douglas right? That's his name. Yeah yeah yeah. I I don't really care. Michael, you got yeah, Michael, Ma- Douglas. Yeah, Michael Douglas. <laughs> no, I I just I don't care about their status as celebrities. But the point is, he's a very famous actor. They paid him a lot of money. They're gonna put him in the movie as many times as they can to get him on that damn poster so they justify that credit. And <sighs> I think also it. I I will say I like the. I like the idea of him kind of being like a debrief after each ghost experience, even though it doesn't happen after the first one, but whatever. Right. Establish that's the situation. Make a choice and stay with it. And like, if they had him doing what you're saying, John, which is like post ghost breakdown with, with him. Right. Then maybe we can also see a little bit more of that regret. We never really see it. And we know by the end of this thing that he really isn't regretting his lifestyle or his choices that much, except for he knows on some level that they're wrong. Um, so and basically this scene is this is kind of the chain moment of the story. Right. And we had talked about we never see Michael Douglas's chain, but we we see <laughs> all, like. So listen. Listen. So it starts raining and, and Matthew McConaughey he's like, it mentions the rain and he's like, oh, this isn't rain. This is like all the tears women have shed over you. And then all these tissues start falling down. It's like, these are all the tissues that they've worn out. And then he's like, and this is all the chocolates that you've sent to apologize and nothing happens. And he's like, ah, you jerk. But here's all your used condoms, <laughs> which is, I think... I said before that the 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 kind of anachronistic Chinese woman was the lowest point in this movie. But I think the condoms the implied condoms, because we don't actually see them raining from the sky, might actually be the lowest point of this movie for me. Like, see, this I is thought the point it was where I'm like, be- oh, this movie doesn't take it seriously. 
See, I thought at that moment there were going to be no condoms either. I thought we were going to go to a whole other level of scumbag. Like, you never used the condom. Like, like, come on, you scumbag. No. I, do you think this is their ch- the Ghost of Christmas Presents children's moment? Like... Oh, well, like the ignorance and want? Yeah, um, do you think... Like, this is what they're trying here? Like, this is the consequences of what you do? Because this is Marley, and because of the way it's framed, it's like, this is all the tears that you've shed and that cause people to shed in your life. This is, it's the, it, it reads to me like it's the chain. I think if you want to go, a, a ignorance and want, then maybe it's the, the three women on the couch. I don't, but I don't think nothing in this movie is no. necessarily one to one, and ignorance no, and that's one true. That's, gets that's, cut that's... a lot. So it's like, what are you gonna do? But I could see, I could see somebody. Look, I think again, there is a lack of a chain here, and that is the problem. But by the way, if you this movie dropped... is also this movie is also not like societal. It's specifically about his issue with love. Like a Christmas Carol is about Scrooge's issue with being charitable, but it's also about the larger issue of like. Scrooge is an avatar for the the greed and avarice and uncaringness of mankind. And right. that's why ignorance and one appear in versions of a Christmas Carol where that's a thing, but they don't appear in versions like the Albert Finney one, which is much more about just Scrooge needs to be a better person and not be so miserable. Well, that's what I was going to say. Why don't we, when we were the ghost of ghost of girlfriends present, right? By the way, just a little thing. There's always snow falling at this movie, so I always think it's Christmas time, but it's not yeah. Christmas time. Anyway, they never really mention it either, but it's just it's snowing all the flipping time. But yeah, it's the winter. Ghost of, yeah. The Ghost of Girlfriends past, as a Ghost of Girlfriends present, why doesn't she drive him around and show examples of love? Like, we get in the novella, like, examples of the Christmas spirit, why don't we get examples of love? See a birth. See see an old married couple. Think about this scene. Think about a scene where you have an old character established at that photo shoot there. I didn't shoot photos like this in my day or something like that. Like just some sort of character who is disagrees with McConaughey and he makes fun of him. And he maybe even makes a point of like, how long have you been married? 55 years. How many women have you been with? One. Ha! And just laughs and walks away. That night, his wife dies. And we see that character have to So de- I think this like, movie but- would have to take itself more seriously for that to work. And that's the issue, is this movie doesn't really take itself seriously. So moments, so moments like that would contribute to the, the tone problem because... But this movie tries to get to that tone because of a scene that happens later on. Like, this is the thing. Like, it's not that I'm creating a tone for this movie that doesn't freaking exist. It yeah. wants to have that weight. It wants to be that, like, go there. But it, yeah, but it always pulls the punch and goes for for comedy. Ugh. It's like a it's like a it's like a modern Disney movie. Right. Yeah, like it's bad. It's it's at its worst when it tries to be just a comedy. It's at its best when it tries to where it's it can still be funny, but it where it has something philosophical to say, and those are the moments that really land, and the comedy just doesn't land. Right, because the scenes with Jennifer Gardner and Matthew McConaughey are sweet, and they they have great chemistry, actually. And they're funny, like that. Yeah, yeah, they well, yeah, they have great chemistry, and their banter is really good. And there's other moments, like a lot of his scenes with Emma Stone, like I found her a little grating, but I think that was the point. 
yeah, was- his his seriousness plays off of the fact that she's over the top and like pushy and changing things up and pushing him out of his comfort zone. Right. It's almost like the opposite of the way the original Ghost of Christmas Past is very passive. She's like much more over the top and excited. But oh, it's like yeah. those are moments that are funny because it's playing. It's it's not funny because of a lame joke like condoms falling out of the sky. It's funny because of the juxtaposition of personalities. Right. It's smart, funny, not not boner funny. This movie isn't wasting time because as soon as they're done with the Ghost of Christmas present, we are in the middle of a fight scene, John. So so you may recall, if you listened to our last episode, way, way the hell back at the beginning, it was it was casually dropped that um, Paul, the brother, had slept with one of the bridesmaids at some point in the past, like not in the recent past, but somewhere during his relationship with his bride to be, he had like a one night stand with one of the bridesmaids. And And we get no context of like, where was he with his girlfriend? Like his fiance? What, how far ago was this? Like, was this 20 years? Like not 20 years, but like, it was like uh, in college. Like, Mm -hmm. and they do mention it one other time in the scene earlier. One one, one of the bride. One of the bridesmaids mentions it to the other bridesmaids. So like it's it's the, the rule of three is there a little bit, but not really. Yeah. And it's not it's not set up at the beginning in such a way as to give it weight in the rest of the story, because so much of the focus shifts to Matthew McConaughey in the past for a long time that this this comes way out of left field. So we never see how this happens, but somehow While Matthew McConaughey is getting condoms rained on his head, the topic comes up and someone lets loose the fact that Paul slept with one of the bridesmaids. And uh, Matthew McConaughey gets back to the house and and Bridezilla is stomping around Tokyo City like a big playground, uh, tossing all of the... um, (laughs) Did you just (laughs) ultimate showdown of ultimate (laughs) destiny this thing? Are we, Listen. Are we gonna go to new grounds after this, buddy, and I'm playing with some flash editors? Gee. <laughs> Listen, this this movie came out in 2009. I'm just like throwing it back to an appropriate time period. So, all right, that's um, correct. So she's she is now tossing all the decorations into the fireplace, which is like a nice visual callback to when Matthew McConaughey was doing the same thing um, earlier in the movie. So mm-hmm. she's kind of like rejecting the marriage, and I thought that, I was like, oh. I see you movie trying to have like, have a visual language. That's smart. So John, I just realized what she's, what they're trying to do with her. The marriage is the tiny Tim. Yeah. Ah, okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Like that's the, the, so Paul, that's like the tragedy for him. He's not losing his son. He's losing, um, love he, he's losing his, the marriage right this this he's losing his fiance and um possibly and like i think you can blame mcconaughey for that a little bit because mcconaughey had influence probably on him and that's why he maybe got scared slept. we never really get a reason why he we have to no sleep. context we have no yeah. context whatsoever we know he his performance is sincere enough that we know he regrets it and would never we we believe in that moment as an audience at least i do that like no this is not something he's usually doing we have like was he going through a mcconaughey phase in college where he's trying to be like his big brother and this was his bottoming out moment 
which would be yeah. a cool thing to see. Like, this is what your brother did because of your influence on him. And he yeah. went down this road, and this is how he has felt every day. And every time you've made a joke that he did this, it hurts him. And yeah. seeing that maybe would have worked. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to figure out because there's only so much past you can do. And I think that's part of the problem this movie has is that in trying to stick to the conceit of past, present and future, the present and future parts of it end up falling really flat because they don't necessarily work. Mm. Well, it's not called Ghosts of Girlfriends, Past, Present and Future. It's called Ghosts of Girlfriends, Past, which I thought was going to be all three ghosts. I thought it was going to be the high school ghost maybe a college ghost and then maybe like a current girlfriend or maybe like i don't know like the last relationship he had that really ended in a bad way and this is maybe his mind or the fates saying you've got to turn around right now or you're going to be even worse than how you just were but we don't get that we get past present and future and in the present there's this huge fight happening about the reveal of the cheating and the breakup and this leads to looks like it's going to be a breakup it looks like the wedding's yeah. going to end yeah. so and paul point, kind of rejects him also mm-hmm. right so this is the point at which he's trying to matthew mcconaughey is trying to intercede he doesn't want the marriage to break up but paul is Paul rejects him because Paul finds out that Matthew McConaughey told the the other bridesmaid about the the affair. So it's Matthew McConaughey's fault, basically. And he, all he, of this stuff is basically everybody is is throwing him out. And he runs out and and is basically like, all right, I know I'm, I'm due for one more ghost. So come get me. And he needs that ghost at that moment because his brother has his, his brother throwing him out is really heartbreaking. He says the line yeah. that his brother said to him, but I think he said to Paul earlier on in life, which is it's you and me against the world. And yeah. if you have that type of bond with a brother and you have that type of love and trust with a brother and them telling you get the F out. Yeah, I got a brother. That would freaking kill me. And I, if he told me that, I I would be calling up to the heavens just like McConaughey here is now because I wouldn't be able to deal with it. And I would need a ghost or something to help me out because that would that would destroy me. And now we get this is a moment where. So I'll be honest, right? I don't have a better idea for how to do this, but mm-hmm. I do not know what this ghost is supposed to be or represent. So in it's fantasy. In, hmm. It's infantilizing women and like the idea of the perfect woman, the perfect 10. It's like it's so what for the audience who hasn't seen it, McConaughey comes out and is looking for the ghost of girlfriend's future. And it is this gorgeous woman uh, in a flowing white dress, kind of almost flowing off the ground. In a way, it's the exact opposite of the ghost of Christmas future, which is always in black and dark and the, the the same thing that's bet- consistent between two of them is silence. Neither one speaks, but she is this gorgeous woman and maybe his ideal woman, or at least what he believes he's supposed to be going after. And maybe that's what he's always going after. He's always going after this perfect woman that's out there. And the, the next prize, the next conquest, and the greatest conquest is out there. And when I can do that, 
then I have meaning because that's all my person is, right? It's it's not a bad choice for what the ghost could be. I think there's something better out there. I just thought what the better choice would be. But I I, again, I think out. there's something out there. So what do, what do you think, John? I think you make it the two the two women that proposition him at the studio, the ones that were in like the underwear where he was like checking out their butts, right? Just two like complete like a couple of models in lingerie, literally nothing of substance, no connection to him, totally silent. It is that like you're I like that the, what you're saying about the idea of it's his fantasy of this like unattainable, silent, beautiful woman who's kind of it's, ageless. But I feel like woman- if you make it one of his models, like one of these women for whom he just has literally no connection at all. And it's all about like weird, like lusts and now and and seeing like the path that that empty lack of connection sex is going to take him down. All right. I have the choice. I have the choice. It's his hospice care nurse. <laughs> it's his hospice care nurse. That's it's, the hev- That's the heavy version. It's that he had, and he's in, he's in his very fa- He's in the mansion because he'll inherit that mansion. And he's there all by himself because sure. His brother will show up to what we're going to get to in a second, but he ain't going to be hanging out with him and living with him. So he's in a huge ass mansion by himself. He's got one nurse there taking care of him. And it's the closest relationship he has, which is something that the second ghost is the reason why she's there. So it's like, and you just see a montage of five years, like just, and they never talk. And that's why she's silent. They have no actual relationship because he's, that self-hating that he doesn't want to talk with her and she doesn't want to talk with him. Yeah. And or he's like a lechy old man. Like he tries to like pinch her and stuff and she like slaps him away and he's just kind of like sad oh, and I pathetic. Would, I, would love, I would love to see that though. Can we get some more of that in this movie, please? That would be nice, you know, but right. But that's like the logical conclusion, right? Like he's flying high as this like the, you know, mid thirties successful, like photographer. He can have any woman he wants, but like, that's fleeting. That's temporary. And when he's old and decrepit, like somebody he's, 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 he's not going to die in the street. We don't think. Yeah. Right. So we've got to show why we should feel sad about the way this man, rich man died. This man of, this man of extreme privilege, right? Why should yeah. we have any sympathy about the way this person dies? Because nothing, you can look at this character, and I'm sure this is how it's presented for a lot of people. All conquest, all conquest, no casualty. Everything, every person, and we need to see we need to see the aftermath of these relationships, and we we kind of do, but in the most safe way possible, in falling condoms from the sky. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it never it never has the impact, and so. Basically, the ghost of the future takes him first to this church and he goes inside the church and he's like, wait, is this my wedding? Like, and it's that same thing where I think Scrooge, when he goes to the future, hopes to see that he has changed and he hopes to see like what the the fruit of him changing will be. But the ghost is showing him the consequences of what happens if he doesn't change. And the doors open of the church and Jenny comes in and she's gorgeous in this like wedding gown. And it's this like church up on a hill and like 
what looks like, you know, upstate New York or something. It's just beautiful. And he's like, oh, no, this works. I like this. And then Brad steps into view and, and it turns out she's marrying Brad. And then he tries to, like, jump in the way of the wedding and he, and he can't. And then he looks up and all the wedding guests are gone and it's an empty church except for his brother, Paul, who's like sitting there in a pew looking sad and implying that the wedding never happened because Paul's there alone. Well, applying that the wedding never happened and also applying that he's just alone in his life at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. and he doesn't have anybody. He doesn't have, we'll get to, he doesn't have his brother. He doesn't have, he doesn't have his wife. He doesn't have any children. He doesn't have any grandchildren. He's just a sad old man. And well, we haven't gotten to him being being old yet. Right. So this is, Oh, I'm sorry. This is in the church, right? Yeah. I, I guess I jumped to the next part because yeah. it, it moves so, that fast. It really is that quick of a transition. Yeah, yeah. It's very, th- this is the shortest ghost of Christmas um, future that we've ever had. So Paul walks out of the church and, and McConaughey follows him. And as he walks, he kind of turns old. Like it, it's a transition effect into, I think the worst old age makeup I've ever seen. No, that's still it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Oh, Prometheus, yeah. Prometheus has the worst, but it's up there. It's, oh, this is worse than Prometheus. At least Prometheus looked like they were like expensive, like they were trying. This looks rubbery and cheap in the face. It's definitely not as high budget. No, the Prometheus trust, one is bad for like other reasons. It, it, I, I, I look. I'll need to see a side by side. Maybe we could put that on our Twitter when this goes out. But they're both bad but you're wrong john this is some they're bad bad for different reasons they're 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 both bad but they're bad for different reasons yeah where where was where was a freaking um deep fake uh 10 years ago to fix this right is that what it was called yeah oh yeah i don't know (laughs) that would have been pretty rough um oh could you imagine that they it would look like mario at 64 like like it's a me paul (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Paul becomes an old man and he hobbles out to this cemetery where the the most lackluster possible choice is made to just have it be. And it turns out that Connor dies alone. And it and to me, it's like that doesn't. So I get it. I understand why they make that choice. But it's, it's once again, this movie pulling a punch it doesn't need to pull. And I like your idea of it being we see him as an old, decrepit man, maybe right before he dies alone. You Something you, with more impact, because it's just like, oh, yeah, just like every year Christmas Carol, he dies and he's alone. But it doesn't every, feel weighty in any way. It's not the moral of the story. Everybody dies. And when Scrooge sees it, he sees... I didn't change. I stayed the way I was. Tiny Tim died because I didn't change. And I can't fix the reality I live in. I can't fix. I can't fix who I am now because I've seen my whole life. I have seen the play of my life and I can't fix it now. And that's why he hates it. And that's why he's he's arguing with death of that. Sorry, death. He goes to Christmas future at that moment. For like, I can I can go back and I can change this. I can I can change these things. That's not what we're trying to get over here with McConaughey. McConaughey is dead. Well, your brother seems to be eighty or ninety, so long lived life. It looks like, right? Yeah, I feel like because his death doesn't feel like something that's impending, 
It's like you you want to go with the death choice. He died young on on a coked out bench. Yeah. He goes off the deep rails after this. Let's see. We never see this. Let's go this. Let's have this choice. We see McConaughey watch himself. We see him spiraling down more and more. Get even creepier. Get even more predator. Like get like even getting like worse and worse. And in situations where like he's also getting like weaker, so like he's being pushed around a little bit more. Like and he's being made fun of because he's he's like Uncle Wayne. And Uncle Wayne wasn't cool. And so like he's seeing himself not and like he <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's tough to balance, right? Because this is still a rom-com. And I think like if you want to make changes to it, you still need to hold to like the essential elements of that. And you can't, the temptation to make it dramatic is there because the original text is more dramatic and you want it to have that drama. But for whatever reason to me, this like funeral scene was just like kind of like a little wet fart at the end of this whole thing. It was Brad. It was Brad. It was another Brad situation where it was like, I know I get it. He dies. I've seen a Christmas carol a thousand times. I've by the end of this podcast, that's gonna be freaking true. I have seen a Christmas carol. I get the funeral scene, but you have not earned it. All right. So far, with the two other versions we have seen of a Christmas carol, and of course the novella, they have earned it. Even the bad versions have gotten to the graveyard and kind of earned it, right? Even the Albert Finney one last time. But it, yeah, and I think that's because the way the the idea is he's an old man. He only has so much time. Right. And if he can't and there's stuff he can do before he dies. Right. Matthew McConaughey is clearly going to live for another 50 years. So it's like. Right. But if you it doesn't but if, his death doesn't have weight. If his death is a consequence because of his lifestyle, he is leading. Then, OK, wait, yeah. I died. I died. at I died. at I, I died next year. I die in one year. How the hell did I die in one year? Well, let's take a look at that. Then we've got something. We're cooking with gas here, not crap. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah. And then he, I don't remember how this happens. He ends up falling into the grave and Uncle Wayne pushes him. Uncle Wayne pushes him into the grave. Oh, right. Cause Uncle Wayne's at the funeral, right? So Uncle Wayne's there at the funeral to give his final, like, yeah, this is what it's like, kid. Like you live this life and it's all fun and games, but then no one shows up to your funeral. And that's the closest we get to like an Uncle Wayne regret. But again, yeah, it's, it's really. It's the limpest basic. version of that. It's the, it's the weakest version of that moral. Right. Yeah. Because uh, uh, you need to sell, you need to make it land if you're going to go with that choice and they don't. And, and, a, and a weak-minded person could say, what, I get 90 years of the McConaughey lifestyle and then I die? Oh, that's no big deal. <laughs> and anyhow, so he, yeah, Uncle Wayne I'm dealing with a lot of stuff here, friends. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Um, Uncle Wayne pushes him into the grave and all of the women that he spurned over his lifetime throw handfuls of dirt into the grave, which is like the one moment of this that's kind of okay, I guess. No, it I get what they were going for, but it seems it doesn't it seems not forced. It just seems like standard. Like, okay, we get what you're doing here. And I think if this are they laundry that scene? Are they laundry? I don't remember. I think it's possible. God damn it. I think if this sequence overall had been better then that ending would have felt better. 
I like the idea of him in the grave having dirt thrown down on him as like an ending to it. It's dramatic. Right. And it's like all the women kind of getting back at him for all the ways he's hurt them. Like it's that spit on your grave kind of mentality. But um, I, I get I get that. And look, and there's reasons to have a funeral uh, to have the, the that this scene there because of the parents death. So it's not like this is an out there like we haven't dealt with this somewhere in the movie. But they just don't get there in a way that makes me give any give any craps about. This yeah, it, it definitely feels arbitrary mm-hmm. because because it's like it has to be there because they're doing a Christmas carol. So we have to do a future thing. But it's almost like they don't really know what to do with it because none of it is a revelation. Like, obviously, Jenny's going to marry Brad. He doesn't need to go to the future to see that. Obviously, the wedding's not going to happen with Paul. Like. It's paint by numbers Christmas Carol plot, and that's what they need yeah. to do. We need to end in a freaking graveyard for some freaking reason, yeah. and that's why. So then we get, um, so he wakes up obviously, um, but before actually before he does, uh, I forgot to do an ad break earlier. So we're gonna do a quick ad break here, and then we'll we'll do the ending of this movie. So stick around. If I stopped your half a crown for it, you'd think yourself who you was, wouldn't you? Hmm? But you don't think me ill used if I pay a day's wages for no work, do you? Hmm? Jeez, only one cigar, sir. It's a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. Hi, everybody. If you're anything like me, you've been listening to podcasts pretty much as long as podcasts have been a thing. And you've always dreamed that one day you would find a topic you were really passionate about and you would make that dream podcast yourself. Unfortunately, in today's day and age, when everybody and their mom and their mom's dog has a podcast, and there are so many different podcast hosting platforms to choose from, it can be a little bit difficult to find something that fits both your needs and your budget. And that is where Anchor comes in. If you are someone just breaking into the podcast scene and you're looking for a place to uh, get started hosting your podcast, Anchor is a great choice. For starters, it's totally free. There's no charge to host the files that you need for your podcast. It also has creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So if you're someone who hasn't broken into using GarageBand or Audacity or a more professional program to record your podcast, Anchor has all of the tools you need to record right from your phone or computer. Anchor also provides seamless distribution to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. So it's really easy for you to reach a broad audience. If you're looking to monetize your podcast, you can do so with no minimum listenership through Anchor. Just record an ad and put a sponsorship segment in your show, and you're good to go. It's everything that you need to make a podcast right in one place. If you want to get started recording that podcast you've always dreamed about today, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So he falls out of bed and and we get like the moment where he's like excited because it's the morning and, and maybe he can change things. And we get the most explicit Christmas Carol moment and also one of my favorite moments in the movie where he leans out the window and he's like, you boy, what day is today? And I like that they had this just this one moment of self-awareness about the story. To me, it's like if you get to do just one, this is the one that you do. So he leans out the window and there's some kid down there and he's like, you boy. 
what day is today? Is it Christmas Day? And the kid downstairs goes, no, it's Saturday, you moron. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. Like, I, if they if they don't do the graveyard scene, right? Like, they do something completely different. And this yeah. is their only exact one-to-one, you know, of, like, line-for-line line beat. Then yeah. this is, I think this lands a little bit better. But I, 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 at this point, I was kind of angry about the graveyard scene. So I was always like, get over, get, get finish it, finish it. He's, yeah. Yeah, we get it, we get it. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's one of the it's funny. handful it's of moments funny. in this movie that actually got a laugh out of me. And I think the kid's delivery is really good. I oh, like he that was... they called him a moron. <laughs> <laughs> this This begins a trend I find in some movies where it's like the kid's going to say the smart line that goes against normal movie cliches like uh, in Captain America, the first Avenger, the kid gets thrown into the water and cap runs over. Like he's going to save him. And the kid's like, go stop him. I can swim. Like, this is fine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to play a kid trope here. All right. Yeah. Um, and so he goes downstairs and, and the wedding is off and um, the, the bride and her family are already like heading towards the airport, which it's we get the the romantic comedy emergency chase sequence at the end, right? What I, and here's what I like about this, right? So normally in romantic comedies, this scene is the girl that you love is going to get on the plane and fly away to get married to her douchebag fiance, and you've got to go stop her. I like that in this version, he's got to go stop his brother's fiance because it's like a selfless act, right? It's not about him like getting the girl. Like he's not going out there to get jenny back even though that that's like a a side effect of what happens here he's going to get this woman because he wants his brother to be happy and i really like that this is the second best monologue in the in the movie it's this yeah it's pretty good he drives the shag wagon down the hill yeah yeah so the stab he like puts the stabbing wagon through the garage wall and then downhill like through the woods avoiding trees and nearly killing himself there's a nice callback to the fact that it doesn't have seat belts because it puts him in real peril right and so and he he races it down the hill and it goes into the uh into the lake or river there kind of like actually psycho in a weird way but all right and <laughs> I get it. I get. I, I like that symbolism. That's that lifestyle. He's gonna go drown it. I wish they had kind of done more with the car. Then, like, it, it feels like even more so than the brother hooking up with one of the bridesmaids. That was like one beat, kind of in the beginning, but it's really not there at all during the middle. Yeah, of the movie. maybe have a scene early on when he gets there, when he parks his car, and he's like, "Oh my gosh, the stabbing wagon!" Like, I remember driving around with Uncle Wayne in this thing, like. A scene with Paul and him in the car talking, or like, or a scene with him and you Jennifer. Cut, you in like, there. well, like, like you cut, you cut the scene where it. like the bride and the bridesmaids are doing shots that advances the plot in zero meaningful ways, and then do yeah. like something that establishes something important to the story. John, that scene is establishing that they are on the hunt for Dick. Okay, and they have to go and find that. And McConaughey is upstairs moping, and so like we're gonna have to settle on the groomsmen. And they, they are on that extreme. And that, and by the way, if you think I am generalizing these characters and like I am like trying to like casting them in a bad light here, John, is this pretty much not how they describe themselves and like how they present themselves in the movie? You could literally cut out every single line that these characters have. Mm-hmm. And it would do nothing to the plot. Once are, again, yeah, they're literally they are, they just there are, to hook up. They are there to hook up. That's all up they're there for. Yeah. And and to cause mischief because they bring up the 
McConaughey establishes at the bar that earlier in the movie that somebody slept, the groom slept with one of them. And then through their own fault after that, they reveal the truth. So because of that, McConaughey has to get in the car, chase down the hill to stop the bride from leaving the wedding. And he crashes the car into the river and out comes one of my favorite character actors, Mr. Robert Forrester. Yes. The Sarge is here. And he he basically tries to like throw McConaughey back in the lake and McConaughey decks him, knocks him out. Sure. One hit. One yeah. hit. I to kind the jaw of a, of a of a of a marine. This guy is a poor I kind of laughed at that moment. I was like, it took him one hit? It was like Batman punching out Green Lantern. Like one hit? <laughs> yeah. So and then uh uh the bride gets out of the car and she's all pissed off at him and he basically no gives McConaughey this... brings her out McConaughey brings her out and kind of think I don't know how he locks everybody inside but like everybody else is in the car and just him and her you're right because I remember I was watching it with my wife and I turned to her and I was like that's not how car, how car locks work like you can unlock them from the inside right like her friends should be coming out and smacking and kicking this guy's ass because it's the mom it's the three bridesmaids it's jennifer gardner's in there it's the bride like there's enough people there that they could murder mcconaughey right now and get away with it like they could do that so he gives this speech and i don't want to say it's all over the place but it definitely is hitting on a lot of different like like love and fear and everything like that but it kind of has this interesting thought about like being afraid of being vulnerable and like mm-hmm. if you're fr- and and you're afraid of being allowed to be hurt and that's yeah. why she's breaking this off because he says this line of you're not mad at your friend you've already forgiven her and you're really not even that mad at paul you forgave him as soon as you heard about this you're scared you're scared that you could be that hurt by somebody and forgive them and that maybe that they could hurt you again like that. And you're afraid of that feeling. And he goes off on this really great monologue. And I'm like, oh, this movie fixed itself again. Like, it, 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 yeah. it, went, it went back to being the movie I wanted it to be. Just for one yeah. more scene. Yeah. And, and he, um, he, he basically is saying, like, he equates it to his own experience of Jenny, of not, not even Jenny rejecting him at the dance of him not being brave enough to go up to her, which is monumentally frustrating because it's such a good speech, but it really does make it like his entire life turned this way because he was too chicken to ask a girl out at the dance and became a big, huge incel over it. And it's like, it's not something deeper than that. It's literally just like, Oh, a high school romance didn't work out. And it turned me into a, a, a red pill pickup artist guy. Was anyway, he, wait, a minute, wait, a wait, was he referencing more that or was he referencing more leaving in the morning? Well, no, he left in the morning because like. OK, so his him leaving from him the, from the junior prom or whatever prom, his hurt there. He remembers that feeling. So he leaves in the morning because I get that. But like, yeah, see, I, I, I get I connected that decision and that fear more to that morning than that moment in the youth. Like, I know that's the, what leads him down the primrose path. So that morning, though, is him making the decision. Like, that morning, like, the Paul cheating is is Jenny kissing another boy at the dance. 
her, the bride leaving is him leaving. That's where like the two relationships are. You see what I'm saying? It's like the choices that they make because of the hurt that they experience. What frustrates me is just that it like his parents death, like it has nothing to do with like deep seated things from his childhood. It's literally just like, I was too chicken to ask a girl out of the dance and it turned me into a bad person. It just feels lame to me. I don't know. I don't have a ton of sympathy for people who like, I don't want to say I don't have sympathy for people who are hurt by things like that because I teach teenagers and they get hurt by things like that. But it feels like if that's where all the weight is, it's just like he felt bad because this girl he liked didn't dance with him. And then his uncle turned him into a pickup artist. I don't have a ton of sympathy for him. I, I mean, I have sympathy if somebody gets indoctrinated in a bad philosophy like that. Like, sure. He was a child when he made that decision to go down the Uncle Wayne path. Like, yeah. What kid has not been. But again, abuse? like Uncle Wayne doesn't get punished for it. You know what I mean? It's like. Well, no. And that's another. That, again, that's the chain. We don't see his punishment. We need to see that he is suffering because of it. Now, I look, I. I don't I'm not saying he needs to be living the exact same afterlife that Marley is living, but he needs to have be in a situation that he has regrets or at the end of his again, like the Marley scene in uh, the 1951 film. Um, he, we get a Marley deathbed scene there where he says, I was wrong. We were wrong. We need that or something like that to be to at least what if, know what if. What if in the funeral scene, when he sees Uncle Wayne again, it's not like cool Uncle Wayne with the slicked hair and everything. It's like old, like liver failing Uncle Wayne, like in his late 80s, like all disheveled looking. It's like, you didn't see me like this kid. Like, I know what you remember, but you never got to see what it was like at the end when I looked like this and I was all alone. Like those like tobacco ads. Matthew McConaughey didn't go to Uncle Wayne's. And that's what you say. What you expect people here? You didn't even show up to mine. Yeah. And like so, anything. Yeah. Any freaking because then it's McConaughey's own guilt warping him into like not warping but like making him see the light and like changing his reality, making him think about himself and how he lives. Like they don't give Uncle Wayne anything, and they even go worse with Uncle Wayne. And we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. There's like a, there's like a cheap gag, right? So. Oh. Um, Ooh. Sorry. Yeah, so basically, basically Matthew McConaughey's speech about how all of this was like a huge mistake and it's a mistake to close yourself off to love um, convinces her to change her mind. And Jenny also is like convinced that he's a changed person and he ends up um, number one. He photographs the brother's wedding. Right. Which so was nice. Your... That was a nice moment. I, I, I well, popped it. And it's that. paying was... back your charity workers, right? Like you right. need to have him pay back the charity workers. He photographs his brother's wedding. Um, He's got to make amends. And that's, that's yeah. one little act. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gives the toast and there's your going to Fred's party. Right. So you get those like nice beats there. Um, you don't get him giving Cratchit a raise, but Melanie shows up at the party and it's kind of implied that she's going to end up hooking up with Brad. So. She gets I a really hot guy at the end. Ending. It's fine. I really, I really, really hate that moment. I hate that. I hate that moment. I hate that the freaking Sarge and his ex-wife get back together again. I they, hate, they don't get back together. They just have a They're going to bang. They're going to bang at the very least. And I don't. I don't think. No, here. I don't think so. And so let, let me explain why. So the end of this movie kind of has you... Like Sarge is giving, I forget if it's at the marriage or, or at the 
party afterwards where he's giving a speech about like shoving a man's guts back into his body on the battlefield and like holding him together with his tears. And that's what real love is. And that's cool because that's like, you're getting these different kind of versions of love. I, I don't think that the Sarge and his wife get back together, but it's, it's, we're told earlier on in the movie that they aren't on speaking terms yet after the divorce. And this is the moment where they're able to be on speaking terms. So it's like a little resolution for them. I don't think they're going to get back together. They clearly aren't interested in each other, but this experience has brought them to a place where they can be okay with being like divorced people who are friends with each other. I, I disagree. I think the movie is saying he gets a trophy. She gets a trophy. The bridesmaids get trophies. They all end up with somebody. Everybody at that wedding is with somebody at the end of that movie. The bridesmaids hook up with the groomsmen who are both of them on the worst extremes of each other. The bridesmaids are like, all right, girls, here we go. And they're like fluffing their hair and they're looking like they're about to, they're looking like they're about to take their medicine and they've got to take it, but they don't like the flavor. And then they're gearing up to go to war on this these guys, right? And then the nerds, sorry, but that's what they are. They're freaking nerds over there are like, oh my God, here we go. And they're like putting their cell phones away and adjusting it. And oh boy, golly, we're going to have sex with a lady. And it's no woman would screw a guy after that. No woman. Okay. Maybe the generalizations. I hate that. I'm sorry. No, the no is a big no, but like, it's not believable. It's not believable that they would hook up with them. Oh, and, but that's kind of where, so again, this is what I keep having to come back to is this is a rom-com and it, it's not, it's not believable. It's not really supposed to be like the conventions of a rom-com is the resolution of the main relationship opens the gateway for all of the other people to find whatever it was they were looking for throughout. You know what I mean? And, and that's, the the nerd guys get to hook up with the the bridesmaids that and the bridesmaids have been rejecting them as an option throughout the movie they've been like there's got to be someone better than these groomsmen and then in the end it's like oh fine they'll do like it's not it's not believable but it's not supposed to be right it's it's just a way the way that every rom-com works let's get to not believable what we gotta go around some we gotta take our medicine real quick but we'll get to not believable in one freaking moment john all right so we cut to outside jennifer gardner and matthew mcconaughey i have not been using their character names because i don't care they're sitting on their swings and they're finally are back together and they're being she's like you pulled it off and like you made up for all the horrible crap you've done in the past 30 years like (laughs) in one day you like you're a good guy now i fixed you and which she you know it's all that and then she's like but how can i trust you like how can i know this is really you and he brings out from his wallet the photograph that he took of her when she gave him his first camera and I got to be honest, I kind of marked out at that moment. I kind of thought I didn't see them committing to that choice. I really forgot about it. It, it, it worked there. It it was, it was good. 
do I believe this guy could have lost his wallet five different times by now in the lifestyle he's leading? <laughs> yes. Do I think he's got some copies of it just in case? Maybe. But it's a nice little, he's got, he yeah, does have a, a nice soft button. side. He, he yeah. does have that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's a good beat there. Yeah, it's nice because it implies that he's been that person the whole time. It just got buried under all this other crap, which I I think helps sell the idea that he can change, that he, well, it's not really changing. Said. It's just coming back to himself. That's what the brother's monologue is all about, is that family will believe in the best of you and believe you can change regardless yeah. of where you are and what you've done. Like, that's what family love is supposed to be like. And in that sense, when you think of it, Jennifer knew him young enough to be like they were children. So in kind of way, there's like a sibling friendship there type of deal that did. Yeah. And they mentioned that they talk about the, tra- the awkward transition from young friends to young, you know, lovers, you know, like that weird right. transition that happens there. So in a way that monologue is also kind of about like their relationship too, which is cool and works. Uh, well, anyway, so that's, that's kind <laughs> of the, the resolution of the film. And then we get, um, you know, credits start to roll, but not before we get all of the gag reel stuff that doesn't need to be there. Well, before the credits, we get Uncle Wayne watching uh, Matthew McConaughey and Jennifer hook up. Like, they're going to be together. Everything's right with the world. He gets his wings, I guess. That's right. That's right. Had a boy, Clarence. And (laughs) then he tries hitting on the other ghosts of girlfriends. Uh, He tries hitting on the ghosts of Christmas future shut down immediately. She just vanishes. Trying to shut down with our Cratchit ghost. And she's like, no. And she's also like, I'm here. And she points. And that's when the real Melanie comes in and locks eyes with Brad. Which I hate that as well that just no and i what i hate about that is that i don't know i just i hate sometimes when certain movies do a certain type of trope and i feel like that was going on there um but then he goes to the ghost of girlfriend's past by emma stone who is playing a 16 year old and she goes yeah i'm i'm like in high school like this is wrong he's like we're ghosts age is not a thing and it's like has this guy not learned anything has this guy not learned anything and why would he try to save mcconaughey if this is still his mentality as a ghost my yeah i i think again this movie doesn't take itself seriously enough for that to like totally break it but i don't think that joke would make it into a a version of that made today i think the joke now would be like Oh, yeah. Like he would be agreeing with her like, oh, yeah, that, what was I thinking? You know what I mean? It would be the same joke because the joke on its surface is funny when she's like, I'm 16. You're creepy. But I think in a modern day context, you would have to have him be self-aware about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the joke of him being like, ah, age is just a number is not it's, OK. It's edge lordy hangover style humor that was acceptable for a. Yeah long stupid ass time i also don't think michael douglas sells the line very well like even he i think i think he feels uncomfortable saying it but who knows he probably wanted to have some more he i'm sure he wanted a better script i'm sure he wanted a better beat or a paycheck's a paycheck no that's also true 
Alrighty. And then we get the post-credit scenes that take place at well during the credit scenes. And we get I think a couple other things we mentioned. I think this is when maybe the nerds get got by the bridesmaids and there's yeah. some other dialogue here. But the big finale, John, is the bouquet being tossed. Oh, I forgot about this. How could you forget about this? I think I was literally I was so checked out. Like I stopped taking notes about like around the time he was riding the stabbing wagon down the hill. So I just couldn't even register this. So, all right, I'll, 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 I'll go into it because it shocked the hell out of me that this was in this movie. Um, they're throwing the bouquet, very traditional thing. I think the ending of the movie at this moment is going to be Matthew McConaughey catches the bouquet. That's, and he snatches yeah. it out of the bridesmaid that cheated on her friend with his brother. Like maybe a little comeuppance for that thing. Uh, maybe not, yeah. but like yeah. something there. Like, haha, I got it. Or he even grabs it out of Jennifer's hands. Like, like she's going for it. It's like, nah. And then like swoops it around her and like embraces for like a closing scene kiss. Do we get one of the nerds catching it for a ha ha joke? No. Do we get one of the bridesmaids? Do we get it for the mother-in-law who might get back together with Sarge? Do we get Sarge? Do we get one of the ghosts? Do we get any interesting, valid choice for this bit? No, we do not. John, who catches the bouquet? The the bouquet is the bouquet is shot out of the air by the archer from the opening scene who is here for who knows what reason it's not there's no reason why she should be here right hey. her entire relation like her entire relationship to McConaughey's character is professional she's never mentioned again after shooting that apple we paid for the archer we're gonna use the archer okay she what we gotta hire her for two days we only needed her for the one shot we gotta have her shoot two arrows in this thing I put it at the end of the credits I don't give a this is insanity. I have no idea why they would put it here. And it's, she's in there in full, like, period garb. Like, she's wearing, right, yeah. like, it's, it's, she's an Olympian. Yeah, it's have incredibly time deaf. Have beard. her in a gown, even, if she's there. Like, have her, like, in a beautiful wedding dress. Maybe she was somebody's date there that didn't show up. Justify it. But it, this movie is... Okay, let's go to final thoughts because I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't. Yeah. So that that bring that does bring us to the end of the movie. So, um, James, I have a few questions for you. Well, I got questions for you too, John. Yeah, let's go. Uh, James, who gets your prize turkey for this movie? Okay, I'm gonna give it to somebody that I actually most of the time I do not like their performances and stuff. I think I mentioned that last episode. I'm giving my Christmas turkey to Jennifer Gardner. She is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. She is given very little, and she makes a her her comedic timing is great when she needs to be funny. She's actually funny in this movie. She's since she she she's sincere. You she's likable. She's not a pushover, even though this character is kind of meant to be sort of a pushover, but she's not. And she when she cries in that morning after scene, when she is there by herself, she's mourning 
the loss of her childhood friend, the possible that she already had mourned. She had thought he was a write-off and wasn't going to be around in the rest of her life. He was resurrected. He was back in her life. They were going to make it work. It was a second chance. And she has to re-mourn the death of her childhood love, the new love she's made, and she has to deal with her future and work just called. And she's got to be there in 15 minutes. 15 minutes to deal with all of that, get dressed, make a cup of coffee, and go to work as a doctor. This character is extremely sympathetic, well-performed, and and usually I don't like her performances. Usually, they, like you said, they, they ring a little false to me. And this didn't. This was great. This is the best work I've seen her do since her second best performance in a movie, which is, um, go out of your way to see this, uh, Catch Me If You Can. She has one cameo s- sequence in that movie, and it's amazing. And she's great in that, too. But Jennifer Gardner gets it here. Nice. So I went I went a very different route uh, because my first my initial temptation was like Matthew McConaughey and Jennifer Gardner because they kind of like carry the movie. Um, and, if but it, I, and if it wasn't Gardner, I would have gone with McConaughey. McConaughey was amazing yeah. in this movie. Yeah, he's really good. Um, I think that when I thought about it, though, so there was there's one standout for me. And because this movie is a comedy that drops the ball so hard, like 90 percent of the time with the comedy element, the things in this movie that are written to be funny are super poorly directed from an acting perspective. They just don't have comedic actors who can carry these bits, except the single exception for this is Emma Stone as the ghost of girlfriends past. She takes material that if you actually just look at the lines that she has is pretty dumb is like equally as bad as the rest of the material, but her performance is so committed and her, her own personality injects so much life and energy into it. It is one of the only things that I laughed at in this comedy is almost every single line that she says like that. And a couple of the things Sarge says, just because as a character, he's funny. It's not necessarily Robert Forster's performance, even though he's great in basically anything that he does, but he always plays the same character. He just plays Robert Forster. Um, Emma Stone in this while, I mean, is she's playing Emma Stone, but she in just injects so much life where this movie was feeling really lifeless. Um, so she's going to get my, my prize Turkey for this episode. I think that's a I think that's a pretty good call there, John. Um, but on the other end of things, James, what uh, what are you going to be giving a lump of coal to for this movie? Rom coms. <laughs> I Dang. have. Com- we're, we're coming at the genre, everybody. I Buckle have come up. to the conclusion that everything I hate in this movie is standard rom com tropes done poorly. So, and I think that's what McConaughey was trying to say with this movie. McConaughey had been doing rom-com after rom-com after rom-com and had gotten labeled as that guy. Like you go to Fool's Gold in like 2007, 2008, Matthew McConaughey, right when he's filming this, he is on everybody's crap on list. They are all dumping on him for his rom-coms. And when this movie is trying to comment on them and talk about the, those tropes and kind of twist them a little bit, just a little bit, 
it works. But when it's playing up into rom-coms and playing up tropes and comedy beats that don't work, it's like it's like watching a sitcom with the laugh track turned off. And it just because I could have said Brad, I could have said the bridesmaid characters, I could have said and and, may, and have free reign to say a couple of those, John. But <laughs> they just sim- that when you put them together as a whole. That's what I really hate. I hate the rom-com aspect of this movie that stifles it from being a really interesting film. Um, I went back and forth a lot because there are a lot of things that I think this movie fails at. So I, I was on the fence for a long time between saying that the, the coal for me is the scene with the mother-in-law that just doesn't need to be there. But I think that scene at least advances like the philosophy of McConaughey's character. I could do without the boob grabbing weird moment. That doesn't make any sense to me, but the conversation they have explains the way in which he thinks he's right in a way that's not scummy, right? It, it almost lends credence to his character. But I think the thing for me that really falls short with this is, um, is the bride. Yeah. The bride character in this movie is, is I think the linchpin of, of where this movie fails because she is, she's like public enemy. Number one of side characters in this movie who are written to be funny characters, but not good characters, not interesting or, or um, depthy characters in any way. And it's a rom-com. They don't need to be like Shakespearean tragic figures, but I feel like I would have believed this movie a lot more if that character was in some way like endearing or sympathetic, but overstressed. And then the affair was the straw that broke the camel's back instead of it being like, it feels like the the camel's back is already broken by the missing figs and she's just flailing around for the entire movie. But then we're supposed to be sympathetic towards her at the end. It doesn't work for me. And I think it, it points to the, the, split minds of the writers of this movie that couldn't decide what kind of movie it was right she's like a number one the 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 prime example of the tonal problem that this movie has yeah no i i I think you're right i think now that you've said it maybe that's more like i think i would that's if we if this movie was almost like two-thirds mcconaughey and one-third the bride and we really cared about the bride and we really got like her point of view and like got the stress of this whole thing like she's is she marrying into money and maybe that's a factor like clearly their money is she coming from money like is that on her mind like like your stuff you could do there with a character to make us have sympathy for them but we don't get that there's not a ton of room for it so i feel like they just went broad to be like we need a reason we need you to believe that she would abandon this wedding over this disclosure but to me like even a super reasonable bride on the night of a wedding finding out that her husband to be had an affair with one of her bridesmaids would leave like she doesn't have to be like a nutcase the whole time for me to believe that choice. And I think like the, with the writers or the production didn't trust the audience to believe that choice, which bad on them. Right. And that's when I say like this, this movie really treats its audience like its audience is an idiot and needs things really spelled out for them. Well, Jim, uh, do you see this as a movie that's going to be in your Christmas future? Or do you prefer that it stays in the Christmas past? This movie is staying in my past. 
scenes and moments from this movie will be in my future. The brother monologue, I almost texted it to my brother. I almost, it was like, you've got to watch this. Like, I, I didn't because I didn't want like, wait a minute, am I like Matthew McConaughey here? Like, no, no, you're not, dude. But like, the love between brothers is, it's, it's, it's so beautiful. You don't, it shouldn't be in this movie. Like it, 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 it was, I, I watched that scene and I was taken out of this film because it was so good. So I will be watching that scene on YouTube for the rest of my life. This movie start to finish never again. Yeah. You, you John. Uh, I, I will literally never watch this movie again. I, I, there's nothing that this movie does with the concept of a Christmas Carol that is transformative enough that I'm going to need to come back to it for any reason. Um, and I'm not saying that that has to be the case, but when this movie is trying to be a Christmas Carol, it's like an okay version of a Christmas Carol. This movie at its best is applying the, the structure of a Christmas Carol to the concept of love and openness to love. And when it does that, well, it does it really well, but it doesn't do it well enough that I ever feel like watching it again. And the rest of the movie is so not entertaining. The uh, like 75% of the characters in this are the most forgettable stock rom-com characters that I just don't care to ever experience again. Um, I might go back and watch some of the Emma Stone scenes just for like a laugh every now and then. You, but you really like that performance. I mean, you picked it as your, as your uh, goose, but like you really like that performance, dude. I, I liked it because it was the only thing in this movie that was funny. Like that was legit that I found legitimately funny and entertaining. I, I felt like she was having fun with it and I felt like her timing was really good. And it may be that just the rest of the movie was so bad that that stood out to me. Um, well, I and I also jokes... just like Emma Stone. I'm in, I'm in general an Emma Stone fan. Like I think she's really great. So same, um, same. she's amazing. So to I... me, she's the only thing that I would come back to this movie for. And I think when that's the only reason you have to come back to a movie, it might not be, a movie worth coming back to. So this is the first Christmas Carol that's going to stay in my Christmas past. So Jim, what are we, uh, what are we watching next week? We're watching a Christmas Carol, John. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We are, we're pulling it back. Um, in multiple different ways, actually. So next week we're going to be watching a Christmas Carol. Um, a much more uh, true to the text adaptation once again, and featuring a couple of the actors that we've uh, already experienced. So we're going to be watching our first animated version of A Christmas Carol. Specifically, we're going to be watching the Richard Williams 1971 animated short. Um, Richard Williams, famous for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, and featuring the voice talents of both... um, Michael Horndon, who played Jacob Marley in the 1951 film, and Alistair Sim reprising his role as Scrooge in this version. So I'm super excited to watch it. It's probably going to be a one shot episode because it's it's like a 20 nah. minute short. I don't know if we're going to be able to do three hours on that. No, I don't know, John. I feel like we're going to gush over this because I, 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 I don't remember everything about it, but I know I've seen this. So I'm going to want to talk about this movie. And with that episode in my mind john we have kind of gone almost the gambit of different ways to adapt a christmas carol Mm -hmm. um 
from straight up adaptation to a slight different genre, but still a very traditional adaptation with the musical um, straight up just taking the structure of a Christmas Carol, but using it in a completely different setting. And now we have a cartoon and yeah. And it's yeah. not going to be the last one. It won't be the last one. No, certainly not. Certainly not. I would pull out my hair and I'm already going bald. So like, let's not do that to me. Okay. <laughs> Jeez. Louise. Well, um, if you have any uh, hot tips for hair regrowth for either of us going bald 30 something year olds, feel free to send them to Jacob Marley is dead at gmail.com. Keeps email us. I'll put you in the ads and send me a free sample. Come on. Keeps, you know, you want to. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you could also reach out to us on Twitter at, uh, Jacob, what is it? Marley is dead pod at Marley is dead pod. You were going to say Bob Marley is dead. Weren't you, John? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we said Bob Marley, which means I get to, this is the second time I'll do the Bob Marley drop. That'll be great. Ah! Um, (laughs) not the last, not the last. Not the last. I have it on standby in my holster ready to whip it out at a moment's notice. Um, James, what's uh, something else <laughs> that... Uh, Just going to let that one else. sit in the air there for a second, mister. Um, yeah. Right. What is what is something else that uh, our audience can do to support the podcast? Well, if you can whip out your phones, friends, and give us a five-star, 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 five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to this, it would help us out a great deal. I know you hear that from everybody on every flipping thing that you listen to, and I get it. It takes time. But if you can just get your phone and give us those five stars, it would help us out so much in ways that I got to be honest, I don't even know all the ways it would help us out, but it helps us out. So please and thank you. Leave us a five star review. Yeah. Uh, speaking of thank yous, I have a couple of thank yous to whip out here. Um, First, thank you to uh, Milo Newman for our wonderful uh, and glorious, beautiful cover art. Thank you to Ben DeVries, who composed and performed our uh, interstitial and theme music and provided it to us under a Creative Commons license. We really appreciate being able to use a really great song for our opening and closing. I get a big smile on my face every time I listen to it. It's Um, it's warm. It's 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 comfort food to hear it each week. It's I, I like it. Yeah, I like how I'm talking um, up our own you. podcast. <laughs> it's fine. Listen, listen. If we can't enjoy it, who can? Right? Da- damn um, right. And thank you to all of you who continue to enjoy our exhaustive and exhausting exploration of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Hopefully, you stick with us for many, many more and. As we close out, as always, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.